When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well being collide. The podcast where the life changing stuff happens. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called family friendly funny fucker and today's theme is jokes and if you're liking our jokes or anything else about the podcast do please remember to keep liking reviewing following subscribing all of those things it massively massively helps so back to jokes the oldest recorded joke dates back to 1900 bc and it was a fart joke And the oldest known British joke dates back to the 10th century. It was found in a book of Anglo-Saxon poetry, and it goes like this. Strap in. That's not part of it. That's me telling you to strap in. What hangs at a man's thigh and wants to poke the hole that it's often poked before? A key. Oh, innocent times. Some of the earliest known Uranus jokes can be traced back to an 1881 edition of Puck magazine. And research suggests that women make more jokes when they're not being interrupted by men. I think even without the help of science, it's fair to say women do everything better without being interrupted by men. How's it going? How are you doing? In the kitchen? That's today's guest, Paul Chowdhury. When ChatGPT was tasked with generating over 1,000 jokes, 90% of them were the same 25 jokes, just repeated over and over. See, comedians are not dispensable. Oh, and if you don't know what ChatGPT is, Google it, as long as you're confident that the results won't be manipulated by AI. The ideal time to make a joke about something horrible is apparently 36 days later. I guess that's why it's hard to make a eulogy funny. Bob Hope catalogued all of his over half a million jokes by indexing them into different categories and storing them in 12 four-drawer cabinets in what he called his joke file. And his joke file was a fire and theft-proof eight by five foot bank vault. See, that's the way some Bobs store their jokes. Our late, great Bob Monkhouse, of course, just wrote them in a book and then lost it. Um, Let me just turn do not disturb on. Paul Chowdhury is a comedian, actor and writer, once described as the greatest British Asian comedian of all time. In 2019, his record-breaking stand-up tour show, Live In It, was released as an Amazon Prime original special in 200 countries worldwide. This followed the enormous success of his Live In It stand-up tour, which received two nationwide extensions, including Five Nights at the Hammersmith Apollo and a sold-out show at Wembley Arena. 
making Paul the first British Asian stand-up to sell out the 10,000-seater venue. As an actor, he stars in one of the leading roles alongside Patrick Dempsey in the TV series Devils, and his many other TV appearances include Channel 4's Stand Up for the Week, Live at the Apollo and Taskmaster. Paul is a prolific presence on social media and his reels have been viewed over 35 million times on Facebook. Next month, he's bringing his latest show, Family Friendly Comedian, to Edinburgh, where it will be running from the 2nd to the 28th of August in the Pleasance Courtyard Cabaret Bar. By the way, we talk in this episode about shadow bans on social media. So just in case you don't know what a shadow ban is, well, first of all, it's something that social media platforms say doesn't exist. But the belief is it does exist. And it's basically when content is blocked or partially blocked without anyone being officially banned. How do we know it's happening? Well, your content goes from tens of thousands of views to almost no views for a little bit, and then it goes back to normal. If you're not interested in such things, that's probably extremely boring. But the rest of this podcast is very interesting so don't let that deter you um paul and i talked as well about shadow bands we talked about starting out working out selling out class comedy joke theft lenny kravitz philip schofield being an extra being recognized algorithms money ambition and ai But we started by talking, well, just before we did the podcast, I'd been having a chat with his agent about our respective dogs. So I started by asking Paul, are you a dog person? Yeah, I love dogs, yeah. What dog you got? He actually looks, if he was away, if he wakes up, I'm going to put him on the screen because he looks quite like you with the facial hair. He's a yeah. miniature wire-haired dachshund, and he gets quite—he gets quite the sort of um, <laughs> the Dickensian gentleman uh, yeah, they... a look around the old gills. And he's in a bit overdue for a groom, so he's looking quite—he's looking quite—he looks a bit like a—he looks quite Brexiteer, really. Not that you do, but he's got mm-hmm. a real like—he's called Jeff, and he looks like he should be propping up the bar, chatting about you know people coming over here taking our jobs. How old is he? Eighteen months. All right. I, I didn't know you had a dog. Well, you wouldn't probably because he's. I didn't have it. I don't know when did you and I actually we've seen each other recently, haven't we? We've so you're seen top, each other. top secret. Yeah, yeah, we run into each other there, don't we? Um, yeah. So I got him uh, just over a year ago when I couldn't face the lonely abyss of uh, existential angst caused by no other living uh, human in my house. Let's start on that right. kind of a level, shall we? You were born in Edgware, weren't you? Yeah. My dad was in Stanmore. Oh, really? Yeah, so my dad's family are from that neck of the woods, so I spent a lot of my childhood in and around that area. Ah, yeah. so you came to Edgeworth. So we're the same age, aren't we? No, I'm loads older than you. Are you? Yeah, you're, you're, you're born in 74. Yeah. 69, me. Oh, really? Mm. Very mm. old. And you've got kids? Yeah, got grown-up kids. Yeah. In fact, my son was born about the same time you became a stand-up. That's how different our lives have been. Mm. So I was just immersing myself as a young-ish woman in being a mum, not quite intentionally, but very pleased it happened. Uh, she has to say that, disclaimer. And uh, you were out there, you know, doing, living your life, living your when, best showbiz life. When did you start? Uh, not long ago. Well, long enough ago, eight years ago. So still quite a baby comedian. Definitely, I got, I got into it late, it's fair to say, in my mid-40s. Yeah, baby, yeah. 
Yeah, a little baby, and you're a proper grown-up. Jerry Seinfeld said, didn't he? He said, in stand-up terms, you're the age you are. So I'm still only an eight-year-old, and yeah. you are, uh, what are you, 20? 25-year-olds. 25. Well, late 98 has started, so. Oh, yeah, okay. As a person who lives on their own, are you quite meticulous about your environment? It looks very neat, but it could be that if you turned your camera around, it's an absolute oh, yeah. shit show. But yeah, is, are, you, are you very tidy? I've just tidied up this bit here and this bit here. But the rest of it. There's all shit everywhere. Is there? So I've just moved everything out of the way. Because I think of you as someone quite disciplined, like because really? of your fitness and your nutrition and you're very, like your look is sharp. Yeah, look at that. I mean, I, no, let's not even do it. Um, I mean, I run, but I don't work out. I don't take it seriously. I'm probably for my age, I'm not bad in terms of fitness, but I don't do all the stuff you do. I don't mm. make it my, it's not your life's work, obviously, because you have a rather successful career, but it's a big part of your life, isn't it? Fitness and nutrition. Yeah, a lot of steroids. You don't take steroids. steroids. Is that why, yeah. it, without the steroids, are you clean shaven? Yeah. And then it just, it's like Wolverine once you start taking them. Is it, does it add testosterone or take away? I'm not sure. Steroids. I don't know. But as a menopausal woman, um, I take testosterone. Do you? I'd be cancelled if I tried to run in the Olympics. I mean, I'd be cancelled for a few reasons if I tried to run in the Olympics. But yeah, I would fail the test. That's there you like, go. Yeah, a trainer. Yeah. <laughs> It's a shame we don't do this all on video because we could just be letting this roll uh, and our <laughs> listeners, I'll, I'll be doing a running commentary as what's happening. But do you take it? So, so yeah, so you're, you, but you just go, you're hardcore gym, working out, eating the right stuff. You, you are extremely try, disciplined. Try to, try to, you know. Did you always, were you like that? Were you always like that? When you were a little boy in Edgware, were you thinking, I want to be hench? I wanted to be a sportsman. Did you? Mm. Did you do lots a, of sports? I wanted to be a tennis player. Did you? What happened? You couldn't play tennis? Couldn't play tennis. That's a bugger, isn't it? But the coaching was too expensive. It's a very middle-class sport. So what so, was your background, Paul? I don't know. Are you from a middle-class family? or Working class. My dad Working class family. Yeah. And where did you see so you went to school at local state schools and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, my dad came here in 1964. And then, okay. um, and then my, his elder brother was here already, and then he lent him five pounds. And... Um, then he just worked around in factories and then London Transport, bought my elder brother and sister over from India and my mum, and then they settled in London. So you were the only of their children to be born in London? Was Is that right? Your older siblings were born before they came to London? I was born in Edgware, yeah. You born in Edgware, yeah. I was thinking, is, yeah. is Edgware not quite London? I was thinking it is. London. It is London, yeah. yeah. Just about London. I know, I used to say to my friends when I'd go and stay with my gran in Stanmore, I'm going to London and then I'd get there and I'd be like, it doesn't really feel like... It's on the edge, isn't it? Somewhere. I've got a real affection for that area though, just because that's where my where my dad is, um, where my dad's from. And did you so in terms because you, you're quite hard to place in terms, you're quite well spoken, you're quite a world nowadays. I would, is it you would easily, yeah, but now you've gone, is it? But now you are very <laughs> you've got a good you've got good diction. You speak the Queen's English with oh, thanks, pronunciation. I appreciate that. So you I'd, do sound quite, you know, yeah, you sound like you've you've middle classed it. I've got a good diction. You've got good diction, yeah. I think you and I, obviously, we're both midlife, both comedians, some things in common, but we've got we've had quite different runs at comedy, haven't we, in terms of you doing it for so long and being mm. such a massive, I mean, massive selling comic. I was listening to you on Chatterbox. Hello, podcast penance. It's producer Mike here with another handy clarification. They're talking about the podcast Chatterbix with David Earl and Joe Wilkinson, but you knew that already. 
And they were just like, they all they wanted to talk about was how are you selling that many tickets? <laughs> but yeah, with a small amount of professional envy. But you do you do sell well. I'm very grateful for the audience I have. I can put a show on and with literally no publicity, the tickets sell. Like I've I put on, I think, this side of Edinburgh, five or six Leicester Squares recently. I, I didn't even put it on Instagram. And they all sold out. And that's a nice room, isn't it? That's a good few hundred mm. in that big room. Yeah, it's about four, fifth, four, four-ish, four fifty. Yeah. So if you're and if you're and lots of comics, as we know, struggle to sell the London dates because in mm. London everyone can see everybody any which way. Whereas if it's the one show in whatever theatre in the arse end of nowhere, people will come. But it's a testament to anyone who's selling out the big London rooms. Not least Wembley Arena. That's a decent one to yeah. sell out, isn't it? Well, on that tour, I did five Apollos and a Wembley. And then plus shows around the outskirts of London, like Watford Coliseums and uh, places like that and St Albans Arenas. And so I did a, just under 100,000 on that tour. That's amazing. So are you the richest comic in showbiz? No, because there's a lot of overheads. I guess with Wembley, yeah, because I come from that side of things. Mm. So I'm always thinking about the margins. And a one night at the Wembley Arena, you've got all overheads and no comfort zone, haven't you? One night is um, there's lots of stuff, yeah, lots of overheads. All the promotion, publicity, setup. But I did. I remember doing that. We, I I sold it out on a when on a Wednesday, and I went to see I think Lenny Kravitz the week after, and I sold more tickets than Lenny Kravitz. Now there's a poster quote. So I was quite like, oh, Le- Lenny Kravitz. They had to curtain off certain areas. Because Lenny Kravitz didn't sell it out. Makes me quite... think I'm going to get Lenny Kravitz on this. You could de- potentially get, get Lenny Kravitz. You know, if I'm on this podcast, yeah, and I'm then he needs than... to be asking me to be on this podcast, and I need to go maybe in the next season, Lenny. I'll let you know. And I'm, I'm bigger than Lenny Kravitz. Now, I'll yeah. let you know. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. That's that's a nice sentence to be able to say. It's one I suspect I'm never going to get to say. I've sold more tickets than Lenny Kravitz. It's just a hunch, um, but happy for you. But when you do those, so what you got straight into stand up at what age would you have been? 25 years ago. So in your 20s. Yeah, early 20s. Early 20s. Mm-hmm. So I'm always fascinated talking to people who've done it that opposite way round to me. So you that's kind of what you've known professionally then is stand up. Early mid twenties, yeah, and it was a lot harder then. I think com- comedy, and the audiences were a lot tougher. Yes, and you weren't protected from some of those old the junglers type rooms. There was no. It's quite gladiatorial, wasn't it? I think I broke into junglers and the comedy store within two years of doing stand up, and I was doing twenties at comedy store and junglers by then. So, what made you so good so quickly? looking back at your little baby self doing all of that. Well, others will maybe not agree with your opinion on that, but I was effective. And what made you effective? I just was very, I just used to write very short, tight jokes that were effective in those kind of big rooms. And that's kind of helped me in terms of, I, I use minimal words to get to a punchline. So that's really quite effective for uh, arenas and Apollos. Well, I did four Channel 4 galas at the O2 Arena with Lee Evans and everyone. So, But you have to make your jokes very quick, quick quick-fire jokes, you know. And and I kind of build that up through 
also doing like the black comedy. I, I, the black comedy circuit was a circuit in itself around that period of time. And um, they're not there to listen to your autobiography without any punchlines, which you can tend to do in Edinburgh. Whereas there, there's like bang, it's like machine gun fire. If you watch American black comedy, it's quick fire and it's relentless to the point where they want the audience to be holding onto their abdominal muscles in pain. Did you watch people like Richard Pryor? Who were your influences? Like, who were you watching? That because because you're describing a certain type of also American comic, particularly yeah. when you were starting out. That was if you looked at comedy, whatever you could see on telly, that was what you were seeing. It was rapid fire, punchline driven. It wasn't. It was the opposite of a sort of Nanette style Edinburgh show. So what yeah. were the what were the sort of people you were watching that were influencing? Well, you? no offense to Nanette. No, I love um, and I absolutely love her. I think she's amazing, but it's a whole different type of show. Yeah. I did Montreal with her actually. A few yeah, years Hannah Gadsby, ago. listener, for anyone who doesn't know, most of our listeners will know. But yes, I think she's amazing and I she's love her. Nice, nice, um nice person. Nice person. And I got on very well with with Hannah and but she got heckled actually. I did the gala at the Montreal finale and then she got quite upset that um but that the problem is we're doing these it's a different you play to your audience when you do edinburgh you can do a certain thing when you do the rooms i came through in the early 2000s maybe some of the rougher clubs and even say um no disrespect to comics that played jonglers or the comedy store but it was very punchline heavy you didn't have time to go into certain diatribes or or stories that you'd probably can do in Edinburgh or one man shows when I do tour shows I have the space to do that but when you're doing 20 minute sets it's like you've got to smash that gig to get rebooked and pay the mortgage or the rent and but it's one thing knowing that it's another thing being able to consistently deliver that and the only way you were getting booked for those venues and getting rebooked was that you were doing that which two years in is beyond most people's gift I mean that's the reality of it there aren't many comics who can do that even though we know what we're trying to do and I know the goalposts have changed now and you see lots of you know when you and I do top secret you see every type of act and it isn't all about quick fire punchlines and sometimes people are very far from a punchline mm-hmm. um, and then the punchline does or doesn't deliver when they get to it but how are you, how were you writing then because the, lots of people I think get into stand-up either because they they're just a natural performer or because they're a great writer and they want to find a way to get their stuff out there but it sounds like you manage you managed to come out the gates with both but what got you into it then well as you were asking the influences were the yeah they were the americans uh in fact so when i was uh, younger i would get cassettes from hmv and tower records in london i'd go tower records in piccadilly circus was one of the only shops that you you could get like richard Pryor cassettes from i probably got them in my drawers here now still um, so Richard Pryor cassettes, uh, Sam Kinison, George Carlin, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, uh, Rodney Dangerfield was a big pioneer of a lot of the Americans. That Jerry Seinfeld at the time was discovered was kind of pushed into the mainstream by Rodney Dangerfield. Jackie Mason was a big influence of mine. He was a Jewish American comic who died a couple of years ago, but I saw him in. The West End when he used to come to London, very Jewish, very quick fire mm-hmm. from the 
from and and the, there was a, a Jewish circuit in New York uh, in the board that they did create their own scene. Jewish comedy was very big in America as well because they wouldn't get booked in in the mainstream clubs at the time, and then black comedy became bigger. So I'd say American stand-up was a lot more alternative than our stand-up because back then, we're going back to the 90s, and some of that comedy was just, which was from the 80s. At that point, we had people like Bernard Manning and um, slightly like Roy Chubby Brown, and, and these were considered um, even... Like there, there was a show on ITV called The Comedians, but they'd all share jokes. So they had a pool of material that they'd all share. And so that say me and you were at a club in the 1980s. I'd ask Kelly, have you done that joke yet about you know wheelbarrow position with your wife or something? You know, something like so you wouldn't step on each other's gags. I'd love you and I to be sharing material. I think that would get us some, that would that would generate some publicity, I think. You just go on and do my set and I'll do yours. I'm going to be like, that seemed a little well, off. Well, that was the thing, but back then... Because they were so generic, although they were men, men telling jokes often at women's expense. Exactly, they had that in exactly. Common, didn't they? Yeah. And my mother-in-law gag. Have you done that mother-in-law gag? Of, yeah. So we wouldn't be autobiographical talking about ourselves. It would just be a bunch of jokes. Mm-hmm. That we and often share. people didn't know who'd quite written the joke as well. There were those jokes that were just in the common domain yeah. and nobody even quite knew where they came from. They were just there in but the now, usage. Exactly. So now it's intellectual problem that you, if you did my joke or vice versa, there'd be an, an issue. Like, and, and when I've pulled people up on that, like um, Jeremy Clarkson did my joke on In the Sun a couple of weeks ago. Oh, did he? Which joke? He stole one of my jokes. And this is probably the most stolen joke I've ever done. I did a joke in, in my first DVD on Live at the Apollo in 2012. I said, in this country, uh, if you get stabbed, they won't find the killers. But if you drive down a bus lane, they'll take a picture of you in the car and send it to your house in 48 hours. So if you get stabbed, make sure you get stabbed in a bus lane. Very good. And and that's been used as like a meme and and, and all these. And it's been stolen so much. And I pulled it up and I've already... I used to put it on like Facebook and say it's that, great. That's... You've got it on telly and that clearly yeah. earmarked as yours at that time, isn't it? But the, so but the comments easy. you get, the comments you get from people, it's like, it's just a joke. What's yeah. the problem? Why are you, who cares? Not like you've written it. My dad used to say that, or that's just a thing. Who cares? Like it's obvious that like, people don't realize what we write is how we make our living. So, but when you go onto Facebook, you realize that people don't actually believe that we have the right to the material we've written. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to someone, um, who, a friend of a friend who said he'd taken up stand up and it was one of those you know, conversations. And he was like, you know, and yeah, and I'm doing really well. He said, I've got 10, I've been going for uh, two weeks. I went, right. And he goes, I've got a good 10 minutes. I said, wow. I said, that's amazing. If you've got a good 10 minutes after mm-hmm. two weeks. He was like, yeah, I mean, a lot of it's stuff I've seen on the internet and <laughs> some of it's my own. And I, and I did say that's not really how it works. And I oh, said, naturally, you won't get beyond much beyond two weeks if people start knowing that's what you're doing. He was like, I think it's fine. I said, no, it, it's not. It's not. Mm-hmm. Trust me. And I also said, but you're also never going to get any good because you're not going to be looking at what you want to say anyway. So even if that was okay ethically, you're never going to become an all right comic because it won't ever be your voice. You don't know what you're trying to say. Yeah, I mean, it could take him some time and you can learn the hard way and uh, go out and do these gigs and then they'll get pulled up on it and then eventually, right? And it may help him... Um, develop the skills to perform to a live audience but um yeah he'll never become that comic because we were all influenced when we first began 
we were never our true selves. Yeah, who really. were you? Because you see it, I'm sure you see it now with newer comics when you do clubs like Top Secret and you can really see what their influences are, right? When mm. they're really sort of probably not even aware that they are, but they're sort of channeling whatever comic they obviously love. And then that diminishes and they become their own comic. Do you think when you were starting out, you were like any of the comics that you were admiring when you look back at it, that you think actually I was quite, not derivative, but I was heavily influenced by? Um uh, I would have been influenced by the American because that my style of writing is quite American driven. So I didn't watch, I didn't go to any of these comedy courses. A lot of comics go to comedy courses and then learn. They weren't really such a thing back then, were they? It wasn't a sort of, it wasn't, a, I mean, now everybody's a comic, aren't they? Everyone's a plumber, a comic, a, yeah. an add on. I'm a comedian. Yeah. And there were course, there's, there's so many courses now yeah. you can go to a comedy course and they just want to get it off their bucket list. And that's probably what I wanted to do at the time. I just wanted to try it and see what happens. I didn't think I could make a living from it. I didn't think even think about it as a career path. So how did you back then? Because so many people, and to be fair, some really good people like Sean Walsh, he did um, Jill Edwards' course, mm -hmm. didn't he? I think that's how he started, and thank God he did. But um, what got you, what propelled you then back 25 years ago, 24 years ago? How do you do your first gig then back then just, if you weren't in that world? I just went to, I think, a comedy cafe and uh, went to a couple of little open mic. I thought, some of these open mic nights are pretty bad. I, I, I could try this. I wanted to try it when I was 17. I didn't get around. To, to just kept on putting it off. And Did you go to uni and stuff? I did the computer science degree, dropped mm -hmm. out of that. Then I did uh, a media, film and TV degree. And then I started doing extra work towards the end of that. So while I was doing extra work, I thought, oh, I might as well just go and see if I can do this in the evening. And then I used to do open mics in the evening. Um, Around that time, 99, 2000. Jimmy Carr, McIntyre, doing one of my first gigs with Russell Brand. So it was around that era. Did he try um, and sleep with you? Uh, yeah, no, didn't try. He did. Excellent. So, um, yeah, that's the only way to get on. Sleep with yeah. Russell Brand. And at that point, he was doing Elephant Man impressions. Was he? Wow. <laughs> How far <laughs> and not far he's come. <laughs> so you should, we go back to what you're saying about people developing their voice. He was doing this double act with somebody doing an Elephant Man Well, and impression. Bridget Christie was an ant for a decade, wasn't she? And look exactly. At so, yeah, it can take people a while. But that's what's interesting about you, that you've got in so many people. I mean, I feel like I'm just about starting to get all right now and know a bit what I want to say and, and sort of earning my place on a bill a bit more eight years in. And I know because I've worked in the business most of my life, I know what I don't know. So I was never going to go out thinking I was better than I was. But I definitely couldn't have begun to do what you were doing two years in. There was no way. So that and I'm always most, well, first of all, what was it like then, that first gig you did because you hadn't had the preparation that some young comics have? What, what was it like? Oh, it was just like um, a deer in the headlights, really. You are just... You just get through that five minutes. And uh, it was probably crappy jokes and, uh, you know, stuff that wasn't unoriginal. I think I had one decent joke in there. Um, I think there was an advert on TV I'd seen about one-to-one, um, -one, which was now which is now T-Mobile. And I'm trying to remember the joke, but I think I said... Um, and they used to do these adverts where they'd speak to Elvis. I think that was the advert in 98. Do you remember it? I do. And I said, it's a mobile phone, not a fucking Ouija board. <laughs> so, you see, punchy, five words, yeah. or six words and you're in. And, yeah. it's a, and a thing that every, in those days, everyone was watching the same channels. So uh, everybody yeah. would have known that advert. Every was the biggest. And, and mobile phones, it was the boom. 
new, wasn't it? Yeah, I got my first mobile phone in ninety six, I think. Yeah, ninety. Yeah, ninety. Yeah, probably ninety six. Yeah. Yeah, I think I around the same, and I think I had one of the earlier ones. Yeah, I did. You remember Dom Jolly used to do the, the yeah, thing yeah, where he yeah, was like walking around with the thing that was the size of like the the new Terapisa. Yeah, mine was like that's like a brick. You know, you didn't sort of just pop it in your bag. Mm. It was like I've got my phone, and I might just about have the capacity to carry a bag as well as the phone. Namaste, motherfuckers. Namaste, motherfuckers. But how were you writing then? Because the thing that's taken me the longest when I say people get into it often either because they've got a good stage presence or because they can write. I was definitely the former. I spent so much of my career speaking in massive rooms and I could hold a room and be affable and people would think, oh, you know what you're doing, which gets you a long way as a comic because, oh, you come on and people are like, yeah, you're driving the train. We feel good. But then there's the small matter of being interesting, clever and funny. And it's taken me ages to start to be able to write decent jokes. But you came out the gates writing well by the sounds of it. Well, I was just trying to write stuff really in my bedroom um, in my parents' house. So I was just trying to write comedy. Um, but how were you? I'm always fascinated to know how, just, how are you doing it? How were you? I, that was the thing. It? it was a lot of trial and error. Go to a lot of open mic nights. Stuff would just die badly. But then I remember, I think the second or third, Third gig, I won the Comedy Cafe New Act. They used to do New Act on a Wednesday. Yeah, I've done. I used to do that. I like. I was very sad when that stopped. And then if you won it, you'd get a, you'd get a ten minute yeah. on the pro night. That was a great. That was a very meritocratic way to run a night. I loved exactly, it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that was uh, Daniel Kitson used to host that, and and the booker was um, was Hannah Chambers, and she used to work at the bar, and then used to book the Wednesdays. <laughs> Good people uh, to be around. Uh, and and then she started up the agency and then left. Jimmy Carr joined them at the time. And Daniel Kitson was one of the clients. And then she left and then started up her own agency. It was quite a controversial part of... Because uh, uh, then she sniped all the acts. And there was a big fallout, wasn't there, with the comedy girl? There was, but fair play to her. Mm, it was I've massive. got nothing but admiration, I have to say having worked with her on the other side for a long time. Yeah. Hello, podcast pendants. It's producer Mike again. They're talking about Hannah Chambers, who's one of the country's top comedy agents. It looks after Jimmy Carr, Sarah Milliken, and Joe Lysett. But you already knew that, didn't you? And now, if, if you are quite disciplined, as you clearly are with your fitness and your lifestyle, and comics seem to go one way or the other, don't they? Either it's kind of party, party, drink, drink, mm. or a bit more, I, I'm quite into the old self-care and looking after myself as well. And by our age, I say our age, I don't mean to insult you, but at a certain point, you can definitely see the people who've gone one way or the other. It starts to make itself known in the imprint mm. of our faces, bodies and minds. But if you're quite disciplined about your physical life, then is it the same with writing and comedy? Do you take it like a sort of, you know, obviously take it seriously as a career and spend your time putting the hours into the developing material and stuff? Well, you know, you see me down at the Top Secret Comedy Club. So when I'm not gigging or touring, I'm trying to go to these smaller nights. And I wouldn't say Top Secret, it's a smaller night. It's one of the best club nights. But then I can try out stuff there. It's a safe keep... space to try stuff, for sure, especially if you're a name. Mm. So I go down there. And when I work on tour shows, um, you know, I've been touring this show in particular. I'm going to Edinburgh with family-friendly comedian around the country and you're at the pleasance aren't you we'll do we'll make sure this is all at the pleasance courtyard cabaret bar from the 2nd to the 28th of august but not the 14th yeah everyone 
Everyone's off on the 14th. Yeah, exactly. Not because you've been told you can't do it on the 14th, yeah. because that is the day of rest. Yeah. And I should have taken the 21st off because it's my birthday rather than the 14th. Yeah. And also, to be honest, having done it a few times in the position you're in, taking another day off wouldn't have killed anyone, but it would have been nice for you. But what, I mean, I don't understand what is the point of taking that one day off. And everyone takes it all off for that day. And then it's everyone's just to make you have a small breakdown and then realize you're only halfway through i think just a little whiff of it's like saying to somebody do you want to get out of prison and just opening the door the little mm. draft you see people just ordering coffees and then they go right we're shutting the door again now that can be yours in two weeks and i'm it will be mine in two weeks and i'm still writing the show i'm still adapting it and changing it and adding new bits and so the incarnation of this tour show you would have seen when i started the tour is very different to what it is now. Well, that's why you're good, because you're not stopping still. I think there's a lot of comics who, well, like myself definitely included, where if there's a bit that's working okay, you're like, mm. oh, that, that's okay, that's all right, gets a laugh, that's okay. And I think the temptation is either not to push it further and go, well, there's loads more in that, then that's, that's not the end point. There's something in this, but I can make it way better than that. Or if it's just not quite good enough, to just go, do you know what? It's just not quite good enough. Gets a bit of a laugh, doesn't blow the roof off, move on. But someone like you, who's willing to keep pretty much reinventing your content, you know, mm. that's that is why you're that is why you're worth going to see. Well, you know the whole stuff about Philip Schofield broke off and a few weeks ago, and then about the I submarine. I saw some of your stuff online about that. The stuff you've been doing on that's very yeah, good. yeah. And then the Philip Schofield stuff, and then more recently, I've had to add, add loads of Hugh Edwards yeah. stuff to it. So that broke on the day I was doing a preview, literally. An hour. I literally was leaving the house, and the name was announced, and and I've I've had to add it to the show because there's points in the show where it has to be said for it to make sense because the show is about me becoming a mainstream. That's what I was going to ask. It's called family friendly comedian because because I want to become a family friendly comedian, and I ask so I do a bunch of you know I, I pitch a bunch of TV ideas in the show. And it's up for the audience, up to they decide by the end of the show whether I've become this family-friendly comedian or not. You should be getting me along to one of your shows because I could be doing it from an industry side and then yeah. talk to someone. Exactly. So you should come to the show. Yes. And it is, I know I've seen, I saw one of your um, reels. I was going to say one of your little reels, which makes it sound very patronising. I saw one of, by little I mean short, because that is what reels are. I saw the one you, you know, when you did saying, you know, my agent said, got to get out and do this. And the only way to get back on the telly is to go to Edinburgh and all the commissioners were 10 when I was last <laughs> in Edinburgh. So come out, come on over. But there, do, do you think Edinburgh is now, I mean, you've obviously done lots of telly, but we're all only as good as the last telly we've done. And we get our moments in the sun and then we get our moments in the shade and that's what it's like unless you're Romesh um then we're in and out of telly but do you is that an aim then for you to do more telly and get more mainstream telly yeah I mean obviously, obviously. things like Taskmaster and we're massively yeah. loved on that I like Romesh is I like Romesh Romesh is uh he, his first tv appearance was on stand up for the week which I hosted the last season of and channel four yeah and then he used yeah. to, I, I had him on what's happening white people my first tour he opened for me a few times and so he's doing great. But I wouldn't say he's the only one. He's, you're picking out Romesh just alone. He's not the only person that's always on TV. No, but there's a handful of them. Rob yeah, Beckett, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, there's a handful of people who are quite, always on TV. Yeah, so that's great for them. We wouldn't turn it down. Oh, God, no. No, although <laughs> I do think, I don't know, where, where are you on fame and recognition? Because I, I, at the level at which I get recognised, which will be less than you for sure, but it is 
you know, you've got a very distinctive look, distinctive facial hair. I've got distinctive hair. It means if anyone does know who we are, they definitely will recognize us. We're not, we're not sort of nondescript. You look a bit like that other person. So if they've seen us, they will recognize us. But even that it, it, I sort of have mixed, and with me, it's always off social media content unrecognized, um, which makes me think people are watching it and not bloody following me because I've not got enough followers to justify the number of people who recognize me off reels. But I always have mixed feelings about it. Yesterday, I was having a little bit of a cry because my dad's not well. Me again, just to say that Callie's dad has recovered and is doing well. And if you're listening to Callie's dad, and I know you are because you always do, hello from the Namaste team. And I was walking along with the dog having a slight snivel and thinking it wasn't really. And then this woman was like, I know, do you do that? And then I felt, oh, I've got to say something to her and I'm all upset and I don't want to talk to anyone. So do you like being recognised? I don't mind it. Um, it can be weird sometimes, uh, but you've got to make it as as normal as... It's just not always know. the moment you want to talk to somebody. There is. It's not that you're trying to be... A, like sometimes I'm just feeling... Either I look shit, so out of vanity, I don't want to be recognised. So I'm like, oh, mm. God, don't see me looking like this. Or you just, like, run out to get some milk or something and you don't want anyone to talk to you. Or you're just not in the mood to talk. Do you know what I mean? Well, I did, I did a gig uh, the other day, uh, a preview, and then I got on the train and this guy sat literally, it was the whole place, was, the whole carriage was empty, but he sat on the seat, literally the next one over there. And then he said, I was at your show. Just want to say i really enjoyed it that's my idea of an absolute nightmare and, and then we're stuck on the train together Yeah, that's exactly what i mean yeah. and he sat literally next to me yeah, that is sat my idea of hell and then what could i i just oh great thanks but then i was thinking he's thinking well why why is he not talking to me any, anymore what am i going to do then do i then have to say all oh, right so what are you up to man what's should we go out for, you know people then say can we go out for a drink and what do you do can i move and, in with you you're like sorry it's a bit early I had one guy tweet me, I think, once, and he I was walking down Carnaby Street, and this guy just, as I was walking, and he just stopped while I was walking, and he looked at me, and I just thought this guy just stopped, so I just walked past him. And then he, he tweeted me after and said, I saw you in Carnaby Street, I stopped to talk to you, and you ignored me. I'm no longer a fan of yours. Wow. This is what I mean. The now, how do I know he, he knows who I am? Like, exactly. Thinking, yeah. Oh, you're, you're looking at me because I'm Paul Chowdhury. Yeah. Like, and imagine he didn't know who I was. Yeah, and he might have like, just been looking at you because he liked your T-shirt or something. And was thinking, well, he might have just yeah. been daydreaming or just yeah. stopped thinking about something. But not because he knows who I am. And he stopped becoming a, you know, he said, I'm no longer a fan because you're so arrogant, et cetera. And you just walked past me. You didn't stop to talk to me. But how do I know you even knew who I yeah. was? But that's the kind of um, real life version of being misinterpreted on social media, isn't it? It's like you say a thing or someone decides that's what you meant. So he had his own issues that made him need to put all that shit onto you that day. That will have had very little well, to do with your behavior. Well, nothing to do with your behavior. Well, like I put a, you know comedy content out on the internet as I've done for years now, reels as you were discussing. These are just like little bits of improv, bits of material I want to get. If you don't like it, there's just carry on swiping. Exactly. Oh, do you? Because I get so much engagement that is so negative on those. Well, that's and I the now thing. like it. I like it because I'm like, well, it fuels. I've got one raging at the moment on Facebook about my son's autism. 
and 90% of people going, isn't that amazing? How lovely, what a lovely story. It's me on Countdown, on Dictionary Corner. It's not even like Apollo or something. It's just a gentle story. And then people who've got nothing to do with autism piling in going, you're disgusting. And, and what do you know about this? And how dare you sicken your son? And, and all this. And I'm like, well, it's great because this is raging on and I'm just getting the views. <laughs> so I'm like, Well, that's the thing. Facebook, Facebook is full of cretins. Well, they're also it's also full of my audience, I think, because that's where I always get if oh. I'm gonna get a couple of million views. Yeah, it is. You it's get always Facebook. Yeah, Facebook's it's still the biggest one, you know. Is it? Well, I I, I do, yeah, but it doesn't always I'm just wondering if it translates to here we are getting all technical and cynical about our media planning. I don't know how much it translates to sort of ticket sales listeners or whether the, like this woman who's when I was having a cry this woman who stopped me yesterday and was chatting and then I she was like and I don't know why your stuff always pops up but I love it and me and my husband always really laugh I said well she, and I didn't know who you were or where you lived I said do you follow me she went I don't think so and I thought so mm. you've obviously been watching my content with your husband loving it but not thought at any point of <laughs> click follow well, and it doesn't make a difference if I follow you or not though that's the problem right because, in terms of it translating to, to ticket sales or whatever well not only that but let's say I followed you or you followed me. I have just followed you, by the way, so you better follow me. But yeah, or on Facebook? Uh, no, on uh, Insta and Twitter, ahead of this going out, oh, I'm right. promoting it. No pressure, but yes, continue. Um, like Facebook, has got I've got half a million followers on there. Now, the problem with that is if I put a, an update out there or a video out there, sometimes it will get like a thousand views. Now, that doesn't collate to half a million followers. So what they'll have on there is a button that says boost. And that boost is to reach your own fans. So you don't even get, the only way they can get to you or see your updates is if they press um, a notification button. So they have to follow you, then press notification. Like there's a tick in the corner here Which somewhere. Which well beyond the capacity of a lot of the demographic. So they, will, so they know, they know they... So Facebook, no, people won't do that. They're not going to do two ticks and they don't know yeah. that that's got anything to do with follow. They think once they follow you, they're going to see everything, which they don't. Ah, uh, okay. So that's it's a whole con. And they restrict. So you've got the opposite. You've got half a million uh, followers and then you're saying, and I'm getting millions of views, which I know you are as well. And I've got like, can't get the followers up. It's a dilemma. And you can't take the algorithm out for a drink, can you? Like you would have done in the old days. Let's have a chat about this. Let's sort well, this out. There's, you know, I'll get you get a post taken down for any particular reason. You'll get shadow been, bans now. Shadow ban on yeah. TikTok. I've been because I my keep views... getting shadow banned on TikTok. Fuck knows what I'm saying. That's getting me shadow banned. I don't know. I think I put a post up about Andrew Tate, and I was quoting some of the stuff he'd said as, and I was doing a stand up bit on it on on um, uh, Top Secret, and then the video gets banned because it's got Andrew Tate said even without the bit that's really flawed isn't it with the box is you're they're not taking into account what our angle is on the subject so if you're doing something that's really quite helpful and thought-provoking yeah. around what's a really toxic subject that's really mm. great to have a bloke speaking in that way about that topic and we yeah. should be having those voices you're not allowed to say I'm um, orgasm did you know that on TikTok orgasm oh, really? instant shadow ban I don't even know if it's a shadow ban people use this term shadow ban but they never use it no, they won't admit it, although I do know people who know people at those places. And if calls are made to people without using the phrase shadow ban, but, oh, suddenly I've been getting no views, then miraculously, suddenly you're getting lots of views. Really? Again, so, yeah. So, there, so you there can is, make a call? Well, if you know someone to make a call too, yeah. Really? So you know someone? Well, I know someone who knows. Listen to me, it's like bloody Tony Soprano. I know someone mm. who knows someone who can sort this out. Um, 
yeah but it's it's so it is a real thing but is it um it, and you, but you do have a prolific presence online but also you've been doing the sort of stuff that everyone's jumped on the bandwagon of for ages so yeah. you, you naturally have been creating and your whole content from day one was short form punchy viral mm. type content that's why you're good at what you do so you you were sort of born ready for online um but in terms of your I want to ask you the three questions we ask everyone but um just just one other thing in terms of your background and you said you knew from a working class background you've obviously done incredibly well and 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 are you know you're successful even if none of us do you feel like you're successful do, do you feel success uh, I'm just happy to be working still as a stand-up you know, the other stuff's a bonus, TV spots here and there. But to, to sustain an audience for as long as I have and have people coming to my shows, there's nothing better than doing a stand-up show to a live audience. Who all you have can, come to see you. Yeah, you can do you can do you can do TV spots as for as long as you want, but it's not like doing and I've and I've acted, I've did a series devils with patrick dempsey yeah you've done some great stuff you no know, lots of big acting gigs disney films and but nothing compares to stand-up nothing compares to it so i don't understand how people can not be happy by being having having the gift to perform stand-up comedy well, not everyone has not everyone has the gift i think a lot of people get into stand-up with a different agenda it's not because mm. they're born to be stand-ups it's because they want to be on telly or they want to be famous or whatever it is and and if you're someone who got into stand-up for the love of stand-up mm. people smell that and that answers the question as to why you have a sustained fan base who want to keep seeing you because they know they can tell and is money, given that you, I, again, I don't know what the financial situation was for you, but I'm guessing, given what you said about your dad and coming over here, there probably wasn't loads of money slush, slushing around. Has that affected your relationship with money and how important it is for you to be okay financially and, and sort of sh not show in a flash way, but to be able to demonstrate, you know, yeah, look, I'm doing all right. Life's going okay financially. Yeah, no, I'm still quite, I'm not a big, I'm modest with my um with my spending habits, I, I was doing jobs, working at Tottenham Court Road for 50, 15 pounds a day in an electronic shop when I was 15, and then security work, £3.50 an hour, Dixon's, stuff like that. Um, so but you've known what it's like not to have money. Yeah. Um, my dad worked very hard to bring up four kids, and it was... Uh, I was quite lucky to to have the family I had to put me to this point today, and then everything you see behind me is bought with jokes um, to, to say that you've got a property that you've built with jokes is uh, unusual. Yeah. It's amazing. World. And it's really hard to do. And it's got increasingly hard to do. You know, it's really hard to mm. make a living out of comedy. Now most people are doing not, not, not whatever you'd call a real job, but tons of other kind of hustles. You know, I, I, you know, I make my living out of corporates really. That's, that's the big money for me always is corporates. Yeah. You do a lot of corporate work. Don't do you? a lot of corporate work. And, but that's only because of my old boardroom life, you know, and getting asked to do sort of after dinner speeches, I do do mm. awards hosting, but it's not the sort of getting booked as a comic. Sometimes it is, but usually it's a comedic something else, which is lovely. So the bar you, is very low. You do birthdays and stuff like that. Not so much. No, I more normally do. I do get asked to do so. I mean, I I mainly do. I just do tons, Paul, of like opening keynotes. If there's a conference for, you know, the Worldwide Electronics Union and they've got the NEC Birmingham and they want someone to kick it off with a sort of punchy hour of something that's businessy but funny. 
right. I get asked to do that. And I and lots of after dinner speaking, which is quite male. And it's a massive advantage being a woman in that world because there aren't many women doing it. And so you do get booked a lot. Because um, you're the eye candy. It's very, well, hopefully not. Hopefully because it's an interesting story. God, if at 54 I'm eye candy, we're fucked. Um, but yeah, it, but because, because you're, it's a, it's a different angle, isn't it? So if you're if you're in a world that's quite male dominated and boardrooms are male dominated still, mm. so if you've got an angle on that and you're someone who's reinvented in an unlikely way from that, because most people once they're in boardrooms retire from boardrooms because it's very mm. comfortable financially. Why would you ever leave? You get more and more stock options. Mm. You're loaded. You do less and less work because everyone else is doing the work, and you just sit there raking it in. You're thinking, what's wrong with you, Kelly? Why aren't you still doing that? Um, so yeah, so, so if you don't take business advice from me, um, by all means, any other kind of advice. Namaste, what would you pick, Paul, as your namaste, motherfucking, life-changing moment? Yeah, that was interesting because my podcast, I think we discussed this, was called Life Changing. Oh, was it? I love yeah. your podcast, by the way. And if I could just get half the guests you've got on there, I mean, <laughs> you get fantastic guests. Yeah, I'm quite... And rightly so. It's a great listen. We'll put a link to it. I couldn't believe some of the, you know, the, that I've done it. Like, some of my comedy heroes. Yeah, amazing lineups. Who've been your favourites? Stuart Lee's been great. Yeah. He was great. Um, Eddie, Eddie Susie Izzard. David Baddiel. Yeah, I was listening to the David Baddiel one when I was prepping for your interview. Yeah, mm, it was a great that was one. Great. Um, really interesting stuff you got out of him as well. You know, that's the thing. I don't hold back. And uh, the, the show was called Life Changing because what brought you to this point today? But then somebody else released a podcast the week before called Life Changing. So I called it Paul Chowdhury Podcast. But, well, we could uh, have all been scrambling around in a bonfire of similar ideas, couldn't we? Yours is very, yeah, yeah yours is a, um, yeah, it's great. I really, really like it. And you do, you get sort of unlikely stories out of people. Yeah, I think mine would be stand-up in mid-98 going up on stage. I didn't think this is where I'd be. Well, I thought I might be here with you know wife and a few kids, but that didn't happen. But I'm still a hasn't stand happened up. Yet. Yeah, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. So um yeah, it would be this the point I went on to an open mic night for the first time. Did you know as soon you said it was sort of patchy and you had one good gag, which we've heard and was a good gag. Did you know as soon as you'd done that one, right, I'm keeping going? Was there any sense of nah, that wasn't worth it? You know, the adrenaline and the nerves before getting up on stage, even for, I, I used to gig, obviously, to the galas with with uh, Lee Evans, and he still used to get so nervous, couldn't eat, do anything before the gig. But I can literally eat before I walk on stage now. I don't get nervous enough, and sometimes I have to remember, I, if mm. there needs to be an element of I get a bit too relaxed, and that's not good. Um, I have to sort of remind myself to get a little bit mm. of some, you know, get into a zone of something that isn't sitting down having a, you know, salad on a couch. Yeah, comics say that. If they're not nervous enough, sometimes if you're too relaxed, that's also a problem. You need to turn up. I always think it's a bit like, I don't know if you're into meditation and stuff, but you just got to fully turn up, and you can mm. get away with anything if you've turned up. But if mentally you haven't turned up, no words are going to save you. That's the thing. Um, it, corporates are very nerve-wracking. And I do a lot of, corp, not as probably as many as you, but lots of private events for rich people and families. I'm doing a, a 40th birthday tomorrow in a hotel in London. I've done weddings. Um, See, I would find that terrifying. 
that's much they're the tough than, ones. That's much harder than what I do for corporate rich audiences. I did a fiftieth a few weeks ago, and one of the guests went to school with Prince William. You know, these these are very it's a different type of crowd. It's not like the crowds we performed at Top Secret on at all because they don't really care about you and they don't really want, they're like, who's this guy on stage? Well, and also the entitlement means you've really got to mm-hmm. sort of tap dance for your money. They're not going to exactly. give you any slack or have any empathy. And generally the setups of the rooms aren't what they should be. Yeah, it's literally my worst nightmare. I've done a few yeah. of them and I absolutely hate them. And if I can if I can justify not doing them because enough other corporate work's coming in, I, I don't mm. do them. And also there's people who are great. I mean, you'd be brilliant at it. It's not my... If I would I wouldn't be programmed to succeed in the way you would eat. I mean, you're great booking for those things. So if I get any input, yeah, pass, definitely push them, push them over. But a lot of comics don't do them. A, a big, big arena level comics. They just uh, I'm not doing corporate. They don't want to tap dance for them. They're like we're not doing them. Yeah, yeah. I like. I well, you and I have talked about this um, backstage. I I like I like doing them, but it's the world I'm the ones I do. But it's the world mm. I'm from. I feel very comfortable. I've seen really good comics fall apart, and the you know if I'm doing, you know, and those yeah. are the rooms where I'll play to thousands of people quite often. I feel very com- comfortable, but also I've been mm. doing it for twenty years, so a bit like you with comedy, I feel I've earned my stripes and I've got the talent for it. Whereas I wouldn't be confident doing what you do with the birthday parties and stuff because I don't I don't have the talent for that. It's good to know what we. It's good to know where we're where we're meant to be, right? I've done it. I've performed in people's living rooms before. I mean, that's a that's yeah, that's hard. Tough. I yeah. did a story about it on the Russell Howard show and in interviews on YouTube, but um, I will find it and put a link to it so yeah, people can see the the two ends of the Paul Chowdhury extremes of the scale of playing to big or small audiences. On it's it's they're tough. People yeah, I mean, that is going to be the toughest. It doesn't get tougher than that. Stand up in tough. this living room and make me laugh. And a small, like a living room, in not a very big living room. Why were you in a very small living room trying to make people laugh? You I, sure I it think, just wasn't a family a, a family birthday or something? I think, I think it was during, I think it was, yeah, after lockdown or something where everything was still closed. So it was stage time. You're like, sure, seven of you in Preston in your front room. Sounds good. It, it, what? A Preston, I did a wedding in somebody's marquee in the garden. That sounds a bit better. Where they tried to, a guy tried to attack me on stage. Really? Yeah, I did a routine about it, about, um, you know, a guy said, take the mick out of my cousin, and I took the mick out of him, and then he tried to attack me. <laughs> he, was t- he was kind of pulled away. Nowadays, you just want that filmed and sorted. It well, I've got the sense. audio, but, yeah, the, I could potentially put the audio up, but not the... Uh, yeah, you need to... you need someone you need to be shouting out as you're about to get you know your head kicked in. Is anyone filming this? Yeah, I think they've got the um probably the video footage. It's probably around somewhere. Oh, but I think I, that's I, worth I getting. If that were me, I'd be getting hold of that. <laughs> I don't think they'll ever give it to me though. That family. No, probably not. I dare say that um, at least one cousin is implicated. Yeah. And what is your favorite joke? My joke. Um... I don't really have a this is a tough it's like saying what's your favorite film or favorite comedian it depends on the mood isn't it well whatever the mood is telling you to say now I don't know what was my favorite joke one of my favorites back in the day was uh do you remember the BNP of course. British National Party yes I'm not sure for listeners so 
They're not some around of my anymore, listeners will, No, I don't think they are, but people will know, I think. Yeah. Some of your listeners are BMP, did you say? No, no. <laughs> Lots of my listeners are old enough that they would Oh, right. Know. Sorry, I thought And it said... wasn't that long. No, no. I hope, well, I, yes, no, I was going to. I'm fair to say I hope none of my listeners are ex-BMP. But it wasn't that long ago, was it, BMP? No. It was only a couple of years ago, a bit longer, that it ceased to be and morphed into other horrible things. Well, yeah, it was National Front yeah. prior. And people say... UKIP is the equivalent. Yeah. Now, but um I've even done a joke similar on Facebook, which got me attacked. Listen, we're not like that, you know. Just kind of... But I think I did at the time I did a joke, I tried to join the BNP, which would get a laugh because I'm obviously Indian and and I, I got through to a call center in India. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that used to go down quite well. One of my earlier jokes. <laughs> Very Hello, good. I think that then I did that. Hello, BNP. <laughs> <laughs> and at that point, but I'm not I'm not even sure now if call centers are all in India anymore. They're all over the place now, aren't they? They are. I think there still are a number in India, but yes, excellent stuff. Um, and what is your if you were to give one bit of life advice, Paul, to anybody listening, what would it be? Probably uh just give up. <laughs> it doesn't get better than this. Um, it just gets worse. We're told everything's nice and, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be fine. You're not. You're not going to be fine. It's very bad and tough. <laughs> and if I could choose to be a different species, maybe uh, be a different species, my life advice would be. <laughs> That was Paul Chowdhury. And we've put links to all Paul's stuff, including his Edinburgh show, which again, just to remind you, it's family-friendly comedian. It will be running from the 2nd to the 28th of August, but not on the 14th when everyone has a rest day. And it's in the Pleasance Courtyard Cabaret Bar. So there's a link to where you can buy tickets for that and all his other stuff in the show notes. And that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please do remember to rate, review and recommend us. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, but with a little twist ahead of our return with a brand new season of brilliant guests just wait till you start hearing them from september over august we are going to be releasing some summer holiday specials by specials okay it's repeats but repeats of our absolute favorite guests so far so do tune in for the first of those next week my friend and fellow ginger it's angela barnes i did my first series on channel four of stand up for the week before a year before i did my first edinburgh show namaste motherfuckers was written and presented by me callie beaton and produced by mike hansen for pod people productions with music by jake yap i'm callie beaton until next time motherfuckers Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.